Investors Chronicle. Hello, and welcome back to the IC interviews. I'm Dave Baxter, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by James Thompson. James is the lead manager on the Rathbone Global Opportunities Fund. Uh, for those who don't know it, this is a global equity fund focused on picking innovative, developed market businesses that can shake up their industries. It's had extremely strong performance over many years, including in some down markets. But of course, we have seen it run in some real challenges so far in these very early days of 2022. So, James, thanks for joining me. It's, um, it's quite an interesting moment for us to be talking, as uh, I alluded to. Um, in the last few weeks, we've seen the US markets, um, and in particular, some growth stocks and some of the major tech stocks fall relatively sharply. Um, and funds like yours have found themselves in the eye of the storm. Um, as of January 24th, your fund was down by something like 13% for the year. So to kick off, um, how do you cope with these kind of conditions from a psychological perspective? Um, and how do you stick to your process when this happens? Thanks, Dave. Yeah, yeah I think we shouldn't sugarcoat it. I mean, we're in the middle <laughs> of uh, a market meltdown. Um, it started in tech and now has really infected every sector. Mm -hmm. We're on pace for the worst January since 2009. It's been particularly violent uh, in the areas of the market that were crowded, the, the, the winners uh, mm -hmm. over the last few years. And we've seen a sharp rotation out of growth stocks and into value and recovery trades. The, the trigger for that was really this shift in hawkish, some say hostile policy uh, by central banks to fight inflation. And so if you look at some of the different areas of the market, um, you know, I've, I've really struggled, but, you know, so there's some other areas that um, are also taking their fair share of pain. I mean, if you look at some of the, the meme stocks, for instance, which were sort mm. of the poster child of the pandemic uh, era, these sort of social media created um, uh, investing businesses, I mean, they're down over 26%. Um, the green basket of stocks is down 18%. Mm. Um, mega cap tech uh, has not been protected, down 16%. This is where I do have exposure. So it's, it is an unsettling time. Um, I'm worried about letting people down. Uh, and I'm sensitive that I have a responsibility for people's savings and their financial future. But I do want to stay grounded to the, the long-term sort of five-year investment horizon of this fund. You know, I thought the sell-off when we went into the first lockdown of the pandemic was the buying opportunity of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is building up to be the second best. But it, it's hard to get your timing right. It's a, it's a dark art. And we've seen some reversals some, of some very deeply embedded trends. Investors are willing to sell their high recurring revenue, resilient, long duration growth assets, and they're switching into companies that benefit from this transition to higher rates and earnings recovery. You know, businesses like energy and mining and rate sensitive financials and really mm -hmm. anything that's been deeply wounded over the last 15 years. To a certain extent, I think this is right. I think the pendulum swung too far. There have been too many areas that have been starved of capital and starved of investor interest. 
just look at the energy sector, an area where I don't have significant amount of investment. But you know, this this sector has been unloved for many years and is actually on the edge of a crisis that could get worse uh, uh, due to the Ukraine Ukraine conflict. You know, we've underinvested uh, in our energy sector uh, in Europe and around the world. And now Russia really has Europe over a barrel. Gas storage is at 75% of its five-year average at this time of year. And so you really have the potential for price spikes as, as Russia uses this as leverage. So some of these sectors are really um, uh, coming back to life in the investor's psyche. But I do think it's a limited time offer. And I want to own durable long-term trends. I'm not going to value wash my fund to, to take advantage of, of, of these periods. And so we're going to have to learn to be able to withstand periods of underperformance and inconsistent performance, because I think actually that's the only route to long-term outperformance. Mm-hmm. So what have I been doing? Um, We've been selectively adding to some of our holdings, but actually for the most part, we've been keeping our powder dry until we can properly frame the path of interest rate rises, as that I think remains key to establishing a base for the market. So you're you're waiting to see still what comes out more from from some of the central banks and then kind of assessing the way forward? Yeah, I think that does remain front of mind for most uh, large institutional investors. I mean, we've been through uh, more than a decade of almost zero interest rates um, and high degrees of liquidity. And we've never been faced with inflationary problems like we are seeing at the moment uh, with some larger developed economies facing 7% plus inflation. And so I think you know the Fed and other central banks have moved from um, transitory uh, to, um, uh, to 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 cautious to terrified uh, as they try and deal with uh, and 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 sort of jawbone down inflationary expectations. And at the moment, we we're really having trouble framing the trajectory of future future rate rises because uh, we haven't really seen any kind of ceiling in the inflationary increases. But as soon as we do, I think that could be a potential uh, moment for the market to to regain some of its poise. Mm. Where do you, where in your portfolio specifically, do you think those factors are most important, if anywhere? I mean, is it those kind of big tech stocks where, you know, we're, we're thinking about kind of future growth expectations versus kind of current rates? Yes, I mean, I think that's the the most immediate transmission, you know, as you as you start to see rates increase, um, that is pressuring today's value of those long duration assets. Mm. You know, most of the value of these, you know, highly resilient, high recurring revenue technology businesses is in the outer years. Uh, and that's when the market's willing to put a higher multiple on those earnings for the resilience of that. But of course, as as rates start to rise, um, that starts to uh, pressure uh, the, 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 the intrinsic value calculation today uh, for those businesses. And investors use that as a, as a trigger to rotate into companies that benefit immediately from that transmission of higher rates. 
And unusually in this, uh, uh, in this market, that immediate transmission is actually going through to some of the most cyclical parts of the market. Mm. And so um, people are using that to rotate out of these high quality, resilient, long duration assets and put their money into businesses that will benefit immediately from an earnings rebound and recovery. Um, and quite rightly, as some of those areas have been so starved. And so energy, uh, mining, um, rate sensitive financials really have been at the at the top of the list uh, areas of the market that we know have been underperforming for many years. So probably due a catch up. Mm. And I think that's really uh, we're now back to an investing world that isn't so binary anymore. Uh, it's uh, and and clients need to to reflect that in their portfolios as well. To what extent do you manage to? Kind of reflect that in your own portfolio i mean we've talked about tech but of course you've you've also had some um i suppose skin in the game with things like financials and banks you know how much of your portfolio is does have a degree of economic sensitivity um you know you you speak in your literature about kind of having some sensitivity but also having a basket of less sensitive defensive stocks which i assume would perhaps include things like the tech names yeah, I mean, we're, we're hitting a lot of inflection points at the moment in health and wealth and changing stock market trends that had become deeply embedded. So I think this is actually an environment that calls out for balance, a blend of reopening and pandemic winners, pro-cyclical and defensive, reflation and resilient, growth and value, you know, even though I'm not the home of pure value investing, mm. you know, it's not the time for one way bets. And so last year, you know, we reduced our technology weighting, for instance, mm. from 29% of the fund down to 20% by selling our stay home and work from home stocks that did so well during the early days of the pandemic. So names like Zoom and? Uh, not, not that specific name, but uh, names in Europe that really benefited from uh, uh, working from home, businesses like TeamViewer, Mm. Um, uh, some of our U.S. technology businesses like Salesforce, um, you know, co companies that really were supercharged, I think, you know, by the pandemic, where we thought comparisons and expectations were, were, were potentially as good as it gets. Uh, and so uh, we've pulled back on quite a number of those names and then put some of our money into some banks, uh, some regional banks, really for the first time in in five years, uh, business like First Republic Bank, for instance, uh, which really is a sort of high net worth bank in the West Coast, uh, and some other names there. We've been buying some, you know, picks and shovels, old economy industrial businesses, uh, businesses like Deer uh, and 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 Sandvik. I think these companies are sort of trying to help us upgrade and manage very high levels of demand. Um, in in areas that has been starved of capex for many years, as we as in these customers have tried to sweat their existing assets, mm -hmm. and so as we continue with very high levels of demand, I think it's going to be a um, uh, an important driver for uh, capacity expansion, uh, and a lot of these picks and shovels industrial companies can enable that. And then we've also been accumulating retail businesses, luxury goods, transports, uh, other consumer plays that I think would benefit from 
reopening and the end of the, the socializing recession we've all been suffering from. So it's, it, it is trying to, to, to spread balance across the fund whilst not getting into pure value areas of the market that I really do think you know, have deserved this rally, but I, I think are on a limited time offer. Mm, mm. It's interesting you talked earlier about the, um, I suppose sometimes the kind of binary nature of markets in recent years, but also you talk about, I suppose, kind of um, lockdown plays, perhaps you could call them versus reopening plays. Um, while you very much have a kind of stock picking approach, are there any particular themes or kind of sub themes that you now see as potential kind of drives of returns or equally as pitfalls to be avoided? Well, I still, I still think we're, you know, in a technology arms race, um, you know, and if companies want to succeed, they need to embrace it or, or their customers are going to abandon them. You know, I had an experience with this recently. My, my, my dishwasher broke and I had to call the manufacturer and, and they said, um, okay, can you give us the 16 digit serial number? And so <laughs> I was down on the kitchen floor with a flashlight reading out the, the, the serial number. And he, he said, that's good. Can you, can you now tell me the month and the year that you bought the dishwasher? <laughs> and I sort of lost it at that point, actually, because, you know, why do I need to know that information? Why, why isn't this in a CRM system already? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's that sort of chipping away of the customer experience that I think will make people go, or go elsewhere. And, you know, I had to, you know, wash dishes for quite a while. <laughs> um, you know, and what's shocking, I think, is that companies are still only spending about 2% of their revenues on IT which I still see is very low. And so I think we're really still very early in the digital transformation of our businesses. Um, and so I think as a sort of thematic, I think, you know, technology is still um, uh, very important in all sorts of uh, ways to get exposure, not just the technology companies themselves, but, mm. you know, luxury goods companies, for instance, you know, they're keeping their heritage and their prestige and their scarcity but using technology to, to preview and promote. And, and e-commerce is a key channel for discovery and purchase. You know, healthcare is in the midst of a revolution um, from the way drugs are researched and manufactured uh, to robotic surgery, uh, to medical devices that, that monitor and, and prevent uh, uh, illness progressing. Um, and so I think these are all sort of interesting growth angles but you know you talked earlier about an element of this fund that is what i call sort of weatherproofing less closely linked to the economic cycle and you know we wanted to try and introduce balance and diversity now that at the mark at the moment the market only wants cyclical exposure for for that type of balance but um, there'll be a time where you know when people want to avoid gdp or economic sensitivity and so we own some old economy businesses that aren't necessarily changing the world, but they're making it livable. And so that would include businesses like pest control, uh, garbage collection, hmm. uh, the ovens that cook our food, the building materials, and, and in these picks and shovels industrial businesses. Uh, they're not necessarily at the vanguard of uh, the new economy, uh, but they are uh, uh, vital nonetheless. 
I suppose the risk of running this fund is that you you can end up getting you know a bit carried away with where technology and growth is going, um, and you can end up drinking all of the Kool Aid. Uh, and so there's a fine line between um, having vision and excitement for the future, but not getting overhyped. And so you know I'm always trying to stay uh, as grounded as I can. Um, but there's certainly some areas of the market that I would be sort of you know, cautious towards. I mean, you know, the, the, the development and now seemingly everybody embracing the metaverse, for instance, mm. which, you know, might, might be a, just a step too far at this stage for me. Um, I was amused to, to read the, the former CEO of AOL talking about the metaverse, who's a who's a chap who himself got a little overhyped on technology uh, many years ago. Um, but perhaps maybe he's one of the best people to spot the symptoms of, of this disease. But he said um, that actually he's more positive on the Earthverse uh, because people don't go to on vacation on their phones. They don't swim on their phones. They don't marry on their phones. They don't marry their 3D goggles. Maybe someday, and again, in the future, the metaverse story will eclipse the human story, but I think that's a long time away. Mm. And I tend to agree with that. Sometimes we can get a little caught up in where the world is going and, and, and forget where we are today. Yes, it is interesting seeing the discussion of metaverse and um, we had Nick Clegg being interviewed via metaverse by the FT and all sorts of examples that don't necessarily look as appealing or more appealing than real life. Um, but... I suppose that brings me on to my my next um, question. I mean, how do you, I, I suppose one area we're seeing a lot of pain in the sell-off now is kind of tech that was previously very popular but didn't necessarily have strong fundamentals, you know, profitless or kind of pre-profit tech names. And maybe that's a dividing line, but are there are there any kind of key things you look for when you're deciding what's hype and what's substance um, in tech and yeah. Yeah, I think we need to sort of bifurcate the market between some of the hype, particularly around early stage, speculative, profitless tech, mm. um, a lot of which came to market in the last few years. Um, in, in fact, there's a, a sort of an index you can track to look at the uh, some of these unprofitable tech companies, which went up fourfold since the start of the pandemic, and now is really the greatest source of pain for you know, Kathy Woods at ARK and, uh, and other early stage uh, investors. And so I, I'm quite cautious and have no exposure to, to that early stage technology. But I think a broad brush attack on all of tech comparing it as some people are at the moment to the heady.com days, I think also misses the mark. You know, back in 2000, you know, technology represented about 46% of the market, but just 23% of profits. Today, tech is 39% of the market and a much higher 34% of total profits. So it's a much more balanced contribution. And, and I think you know, worthy of the mission critical role that Microsoft, Adobe, 
Amazon and Google uh, play in our lives. So, you know, we did reduce our tech exposure last year to, to achieve more balance in the fund. Um, but I still strongly believe in the resilience, the, the longevity and, and the gold standard growth that many of these companies have. Mm. And, and where, um, as you mentioned, you hold some of these big names and at the end of the year, some of your kind of more prominent holdings were things like NVIDIA and Microsoft. I mean, just focusing on those two names first, like where do you, what appeals to you most about those businesses? I mean, they are kind of, there are many different parts to them, including, you know, in some cases, things like, you know, references in the metaverse or, you know, Microsoft has moved further into the kind of gaming space, perhaps with a recent acquisition. You know, what what is it that kind of um, makes those companies stand out? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are similarities and differences between those businesses, obviously. I mean, mm -hmm. Microsoft is, you know, primarily corporate focused um, and there are key you know, corporate technology partner um, for for most of the large companies in the world, and um, and a key part of the digital transformation story that so many of our businesses are uh, embarking upon, and I think has probably just been supercharged uh, by the pandemic. But yes, I mean they are um, getting more involved by the day in gaming, um, and so really that is a more consumer focused part of their business. Um, but, uh, it, it is a high sort of recurring revenue story. Um, you know, a mission critical partner, uh, for businesses and now individual consumers. And, and I think that has echoes with NVIDIA as well. I mean, there's been some hype around, uh, metaverse, which is bled over into NVIDIA, which I think is probably now some of the hot air is coming out of that more speculative side of the story for NVIDIA. But what you have remaining is one of the world's leading semiconductor uh, businesses uh, mm -hmm. focused on the areas of the market that are growing the most quickly uh, and where they have a multi-year technology lead, uh, whether that's high performance GPUs for gaming uh, or, or in uh, chipsets that go into data centers. And obviously we're getting, uh, having an explosion of, of data centers around the world. Uh, and using AI increasingly in uh, in everything that we do. Um, it's going to start you know, primarily in e-commerce, but of course, artificial intelligence has applications in, in many different parts of the uh, of, of many different industries, uh, including healthcare. Um, so I think it's a it's 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 part of a very early stage uh, growth part of their business that I think is you know very powerful. But, you know, some of these technology companies have been caught up in some uh, hype that, you know, you know, needs, you know, a lot of the air is coming out of some of these stories. Mm. On Specifically on Microsoft, you, I mean, your fund literature talks about how you, you tend to like to buy unblemished businesses and names that haven't, you know, kind of, you're not interested in things like turnaround stories or kind of buying off weakness. But I suppose you can argue that's what Microsoft has done in picking up Activision. It's had points of controversy and some kind of price weakness. Now, what's your view on that? Yes, I mean, certainly the Activision acquisition is not without controversy, um, but I think most of the controversy is around some of the, the management and, and some of the mm -hmm. senior management there, which, 
you know, a lot of those people may not stay once the, uh, the, the acquisition is consummated. And so, you know, underlying that, you're looking at a, uh, a, a very strong gaming business, one that I owned many years ago, actually. Um, so I think the, you know, the underlying business itself is, is strong. The customer base is, is loyal. Um, and, and many of these games have, uh, you know, decades of loyal followers. Uh, and, and innovation, uh, which is coming through as well. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the core business itself uh, is, is very impressive. Um, but what I don't, absolutely what I don't want to buy are deeply wounded businesses that need a, a fundamental turnaround. Um, you know, that, that's not, you know, this fund isn't a special situations fund. I mean, we, we tend to gravitate towards unblemished growth companies. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think most people would say that Microsoft hasn't put many foot wrong over the, the last few years uh, in, in being a, a key technology partner uh, uh, to their corporate clients. Mm. So move on to another name that is, um, I suppose, interestingly, now seeming relatively divisive among some of the kind of bigger global funds, um, Amazon, you know, for example, the uh, the Scottish mortgage team kind of lost faith in it or began to lose faith in it a few years ago. Um, very recently, the um, Bluewell Growth Fund apparently sold it on back of concerns about um, inflationary pressures. And then on the other side of the coin, you have um, Terry Smith has actually kind of invested um, and kind of gotten over some of his concerns about the fundamentals on the on the retail business. Um, Amazon, of course, sits in your fund. You know where where do you sit on this kind of spectrum of opinion, and what's your general take on its its prospects? Well, Amazon's always been a controversial investment, almost from the day I bought it um, mm -hmm. over a decade ago. And I actually I remember at the time it was, you know, that people were very concerned about low margins, very high levels of investment, and very little clarity as to where those investments are going and what sort of types of returns they would be able to achieve. And I remember being at a meeting around a table with other fund managers and I could sort of see steam coming out of their ears because they were so you know, irritated that the normal sort of spoon feeding approach wasn't being deployed. And I felt a little irritated as well when all of my questions were, were repeatedly batted away. But um, in, in many cases, I, I sort of felt that they were doing it for the right reasons because their, their primary goal is delighting the customer. Um, not holding my hand. And so, you know, if they delight the customer, then then eventually the investor will benefit as well. And so, um, uh, you know, we, we've been along the, the journey with them. I suppose what Amazon has been so successful at is that actually they've used their business as a platform or a springboard uh, to go into different areas and increase the size of their addressable market. And at any one moment, the, the business can look fully valued because you know, they tend to dominate the markets that they go into. But of course, then they go into different areas and adjacencies and different markets, and that increases the size of their addressable market. And so what, what seems like a ceiling is now just another floor. Um, and so I think this is part of the controversy around Amazon at the moment is that we are we're bumping up what looks like a ceiling um, mm. in terms of cost pressures and overheads, 
uh, you know, additional charges in order to deal with COVID disruptions while still delighting the customer. And so if you want next day delivery um, in, in a COVID world of shortages, then it's going to cost the, the Amazon or its logistics partners in order to do it. But, you know, we can rely on that on that service. And so I think there, there probably is some short-term pressure and we'll see that coming through in results where particularly the, re, the e-commerce uh, retail business, uh, you know, is, is struggling with those cost pressures. Um, but, you know, is this really a, a long-term insurmountable problem? Uh, I don't think so. I think this is just another step for, for this business. And as they continue to go into different areas of the market as well, whether it's continuing to dominate cloud computing or actually, you know, ironically, pushing harder into brick and mortar retail uh, with some of their uh, Amazon Go store openings, healthcare. Um, so they're really using this, this platform approach to, to go into different areas and use their uh, technology leadership to, to remove the friction. Mm. Okay, so moving away from the um, specific stocks for a minute, um, in terms of portfolio composition, an interesting characteristic of your fund is that you know you do you do seek very durable businesses, very um, I suppose resistant competition. But while this can involve kind of focusing on some of the, the bigger names, you do also say that your sweet spot is mid-sized growth. Um, and that your specialty is essentially finding some of those w winning businesses before they become uh, household names. It does strike me that perhaps the fund seems to have moved away from that. You know, if you if you look at the end of the year, you had nearly ninety percent of the fund in in large cap names. Um, kind of what's the what's happened there? You know, how do you explain that kind of shift? Yes, that's true. I mean, I've always considered the the sweet spot of this fund to be mid caps, and every fund manager or investor will have a different definition for mid for mid caps. But I've uh, put the range between sort of one and ten billion pounds, and so you know, even though eighty five percent of this fund is in large caps, I think you have to remember that you know, many of these companies started life in this fund as a mid cap and have really just sort of grown up um, over the years with, with significant, you know, performance. I mean, this fund is up a thousand percent since 2003. And so obviously you've had some of the companies that we've invested in over that time graduating out of those, you know, small or mid cap bands and becoming large cap companies. As we as we certainly like to to run our winners, but some of my recent buying activity has been in the mid cap space, um, but I wouldn't expect any sweeping changes uh, overnight. You know, I, I wouldn't expect any sort of material changes in, in the near term, um, but I still believe that that sort of mid cap uh, border is is a very exciting and an interesting place to invest for these sort of under the radar or out of favor growth companies. Mm. Do, you, do you not think then that the, do you think simply that some of the bigger names have become unassailable and therefore you, you, names like the fangs, but also other kind of large caps have actually become more attractive than, than mid caps. Is that your, 
the rationale? I think there's certainly, it's a certainly a good point. Um, some parts of the market, uh, the strong get stronger. And trying to buy the nippy upstarts can be uh, a, a losing bet uh, when you're up against such powerful, innovative, um, creative uh, uh, businesses that have built very powerful moats around their businesses. So I do think that's right. Um, if you want to try and buy an early stage disruptive business, you better have a very keen understanding of who they're going up against. Uh, because I think if they have to go up against uh, Amazon, Apple, Google, um, I think that is a pretty tall order. So I think there are areas that are you know, sort of ripe for potential um, nimble uh, disruption. But probably in those areas, it's uh, the, the barriers are particularly high. And so that's why I like a, a run your winners approach is because I think often uh, once you've once you own a business, that's very successful. It can use that momentum to reinforce its success mm -hmm. and then and, and use that financial firepower to go into different areas to increase the size of the addressable market. Mm -hmm. um, well, what would make you sell a holding? Well, usually it's, you know, deteriorating fundamentals and profit warnings. We have to ha introduce some nuance to that because, of course, you know, as, as we go through different parts of the economic cycle, uh, almost all businesses will face um, disruption to their fundamentals. And so really we, we're trying to um, identify deteriorating fundamentals that are, are presaging a sort of a long-term deterioration in, in the business um, or any business where there's a whiff of a structural problem. You know, any sort of business where there's a whiff that this is becoming a sunset industry or obsolete. Really, for us, that's a, an always sell moment. Um, but if fundamentals are deteriorating due to economic reasons, we really have to parse whether or not it's a short or a long term problem. Mm. So that usually is the key sort of sell trigger for me, but also changes in management, changes in business model. Um, any kind of very disruptive change in regulation, of course, or legislation um, can be the trigger for, for, uh, for, 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 for our cell discipline. Mm. I suppose that would be um, interesting to watch if we do see more kind of antitrust action when it comes to those, those big names we've, um, we've discussed. It's, it's possible and it's certainly, you know, front and center of the, the legislative agenda, but I do think it will be quite difficult to get a consensus um, in Congress on how to tackle um, uh, some of that agenda. I mean, there are there are those that think um, for some of the large technology companies, for instance, that many investors would actually welcome a breakup of some of those businesses. You know, that actually that would unlock quite a lot of value. Um, you know, there've been some, some of the parts analysis that have been done. If you, you hive off some of the unprofitable parts of these businesses, then actually, you know, the intrinsic value of some of these businesses might even double. So, you know, it, it, it isn't necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, a fatal blow, but it will add to the, the noise around investing in these sorts of technology and growth companies that I think isn't going to go away. 
And we've really seen that kind of those kinds of attacks, not only in the United States, but in Europe and in, in Asia as well. And so this is this it feels like in many ways a, a global attack on on some of these businesses, but it isn't necessarily um, a deal breaker from an investment perspective. Mm. I suppose it did seem uh, for you, perhaps it was a deal breaker when it came to right thinking you sold 10 cents last year, you know, we saw a bit of a regulatory blitz or a continued regulatory blitz in, in China. Is, is that you now kind of calling time on, on Asia for now? I mean, predominantly you do focus on developed markets anyway, but. Yes, that's right. It was my only holding in Asia, the only holding in Hong Kong. We primarily stick to developed markets, US, Europe and the UK. But you know, in, in July of last year, we reluctantly sold Tencent, which is what I think is still one of the most impressive and innovative tech businesses in the world. But it was these the sort of Chinese regulatory interventions across a number of Chinese companies that, that had the smell of quick fix behavior modification, um, just as they're losing their grip. You know, whether it was sort of halting the arms race in parents tutoring their kids to get ahead or reining back access to ride sharing data in case it fell into non-Chinese hands or demanding companies become sort of surrogate parents to limit screen time to, to addictive video games. I mean, some would say those are laudable aims. And, and I don't think this is a sort of start of a meaningful anti-capitalist pivot by the Chinese Communist Party. But it, it certainly highlights the risk to me of a system without due process debate and dilution. Now, some experts will suggest that, you know, these interventions are being misinterpreted and they're just wiggles uh, in, the in the country's sort of political um, and rather unique capitalist journey. But the, the constant U-turns um, from, you know, charm offensive to crack down felt increasingly political, capricious and unbearable for me. So we have exited um, our, our, our one and only holding in Asia. And finally, um, something we've touched on um, earlier, but um, I suppose, you know, much of the talk at the minute, of course, is inflation rates. But on an equity level, that comes down to pricing power, um, you know, this must be an interesting stress test for your portfolio, perhaps. But where do you, you know, where do you feel confident about the portfolio? Where are you kind of keeping a, a close eye? And what are your general thoughts about kind of the whole inflation and, and pricing debate? Yes, I mean, I think this is a key battleground. Um, and of course, you know, inflation is part of the unintended consequence of the, the battle against COVID. You know, we deployed more stimulus and relief spending than the entire Second World War. Uh, inflation adjusted. You know, almost six trillion dollars has been devoted to this, and you know, central banks have moved to to try and uh, squash it. I mean, the Fed are taking a, a hostile approach to bringing inflation back down, um, particularly below seven percent. So, I think the biggest risk that we're embarking on here is a is a policy error. Um, but you know, some of my economist friends do see, you know, a silver lining on the horizon. 
you know, there's no visible sign of easing inflation yet. You know, you you look at, you know, a record number of ships at anchor off of ports waiting to unload. But the market is telling us that the rate of change in supply chain problems might be starting to improve. And that's often a precursor to real change. You look at the Baltic Dry Index, which is a benchmark of shipping rates. That's dropped almost 70% since its peak. You know, semiconductor shortages, which has been a maddening bottleneck in global production. I mean, there are thousands of cars and tractors and ovens sitting in lots and warehouses completed and ready apart from a $6 chip, you know, which is uh, delaying revenue recognition. And some of those chip shortages looking, look to be getting better too. You know, many companies have been double and triple ordering in order so, to secure supply. So as that eases, uh, inflation will too. So I'm hopeful that some of the supply chain inspired inflation could start to ease in the second half of the year. In the meantime, you know, companies with pricing power uh, are starting to raise price. And recent surveys have indicated that the plans to raise price far exceed um, the high wages uh, that are coming through and hitting their P&Ls. So we could see a, a margin and profitability improvements just as some of those supply chain inspired inflation in raw materials and ingredients, cost of goods sold, uh, starts to, to come down. So that is the, uh, the silver lining potentially uh, and what properly frames the, the central bank's uh, rate actions over the coming months. But undoubtedly it's putting pressure on all different parts of the market um, and causing this this market meltdown that we're living through. Well, that's definitely one everyone will be uh, paying close attention to, I imagine, in coming months. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting point on which to end. Um, sadly, we're out of time, but um, thank you very much for, uh, for joining, James. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Great. Thanks, Dave. Enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.